Welcome. My name is JT, and I serve as your site pastor here. I'm excited for the day that's coming soon when I can say that I'm just one of your pastors here. Uh, Timo, as you guys have seen and met, uh, he finished, I said, we said last week, he's finished his ordination trials. This coming Tuesday, in two days, he's going before our presbytery, which is our regional body, and so he gets to get grilled by them. It's good times, right? And uh, as long as everything goes well at that, we will, on October 16th, have his, uh, his um, ordination service here at Capitol Pres Reston. And so it's a lot of work, and it's a really exciting time. It's going to be a great morning. Uh, we want you to come to every Sunday, but especially that Sunday, right? October 16th, put that on your calendars. It's going to be great. Um, let me start this morning by asking a simple question. Uh, how has your week been this week? You know, in church, we tend to go from Sundays to Sundays, right? And so my question is, from last Sunday to today, what did your week look like? How did it go? Was there something surprising? Was there something you weren't expecting? Was there some joys? Was there some trials, some sorrows? I'll tell you a little bit about my week. I left last Sunday, as you remember, really pumped about preaching today and uh, went right from here after we tore down and went to Panera Bread, ran into my, my boy Hunter Gossett back there. Hunter, raise your hand. He's right there. Hunter's great. And uh, just so happened to be at the same Panera Bread. It was awesome. And so my week's going really well. I'm doing some sermon prep. Come into Thursday, get a phone call to hear that my second son, Judah, Judah the survivor over there, that he hurt his arm at school, right? And so hurt his arm at school, we go to the ER, come to find out it's a break, a pretty extensive break, needs surgery that morning. They admit us, send us up to Fairfax and Nova, uh, quite, quite the week, right? And so we get everything taken care of. He's doing great right now. Um, all that to say, you never know what your week's going to come, right? You never know what it's going to bring. You never know what's going to happen on any given day. Now, what's important for us, though, is not to shy away from those truths, but to recognize the moment that we're in right now. That friends, as you and I come here on Sunday morning, surrounded by others, under God's word, that this is, a, this is a holy moment where we come together as God's people, centered on his word to hear from him. And there's too many people in this room for me to say one thing that applies to everybody. But my hope and my prayer this week for you is that the Holy Spirit has something specific for you. Because I don't know how your week was, but he does. So my prayer and my hope is that he has something specific for you. Maybe even after the service, you can let me know what that is. You can email me. That's always encouraging stuff. But let's go to the Lord and ask him to truly speak to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that your goodness is truly running after us. And Father, we are so prone to forget that you love us. We're so prone to forget that your kindness, your grace, your mercy is present for us. So God, I don't know how everyone's week was this week, but Father, you do. So Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would indeed work through your word just as you have promised and that you would speak to us this morning. And God, we give you all the glory and all the praise. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. As we dig into our passage this morning, so this is the second sermon in our Gospel of Mark series. We started a new series last week, and Pastor Ryan kicked off that series. And if you all remember, it was sort of the prologue to the Gospel of Mark. Now today, we really dig into the narrative of the Gospel of Mark. It really kicks off for us all of the narrative stories that make up the Gospel of Mark. And as you just heard uh, read to us, there's really five stories that we have. And I don't have enough time this morning to dig into all of those five stories. But in fact, those five stories really do have some main themes that, the God, that, that Mark wants us to understand as we look at this section of Scripture. And really, at its core, this, this section is dealing with the authority of King Jesus, the authority of King Jesus. And so that's really the focus. But really we see that there's three big themes in which that authority is on display for God's people. And so this morning we're going to deal with how Jesus sees, we're going to deal with how Jesus speaks and silences, and thirdly we're going to deal with how Jesus acts. So how Jesus sees, how Jesus speaks in silences, and thirdly, how Jesus acts. So um, you all may have noticed, if you've been, on, been watching the news recently, that we've heard a lot about kings and queens and, and princes and princesses over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Right? Um, is anybody, and this is, this, is a no, this is no judgment place, okay? Anybody fans of the crown? I'm a fan of the crown. Come on, don't, you don't have to hide it. It's a safe place, right? So Sarah and I got really obsessed with the crown, right? the TV show on Netflix that's all about the, the royal family, right? Um, we got really obsessed with it when it first came out and it's kind of continued on for us. And so uh, with the passing of Queen Elizabeth, there's been a lot in the news about the royal family in the United Kingdom, right? It's really been all throughout all of the news cycles. Um, just the other day, I was with my daughter, Annabelle, and she's four years old, and she lives the majority of, of her life in a princess costume. And so you can imagine how she felt when she heard about princes and princesses through the, the nightly news. And so she hears something, and she grabs my face with every bit of vigor that she can muster, like she does one of these, you know, and pulls my face, and she brings me super close, and she goes, Dad, are you telling me that princesses are real, right? <laughs> and I said, they are in this house, sweetheart, right? And we had a conversation about what princesses are and all that, because again, her, her, her frame of reference is Disney, right? So yeah, we're, yes, princesses are real. But it's been interesting for me, just as an American, and maybe it's been interesting for you, how much uh, American news has focused on the royal family. And so, you know, there's the pageantry, there's the power, the position of it. It's all very interesting, right? And something that has been talked about a little bit, but not extensively, is this topic of divine right. You guys know what divine right is? Divine right is actually a political and a religious doctrine. And it's the political and religious doctrine that the monarchy rests on. So divine right is the belief, it's the doctrine that states that a king or a queen has the right to rule, not because the people have given them that power or right, not because, they, not because the military has given it to them, not because they have claimed it for themselves, but rather divine right is there because they, they claim they have the right to rule because of the divine, 
because of their birthright, because of the blood that flows through their veins, because of who they are as a king or queen within the royal family. Interesting little tidbit, the phrase, by the grace of God, right? We all know that phrase, right? It's one we use often. That phrase actually became common because it, if you look in some of the, the ancient manuscripts of kings and queens, their titles would always have their official titles. And before every official title, they would say, by the grace of God. And what it, was, what it meant to point out was that they were kings or queens by the grace of God. Again, pointing to their divine right, their divine authority. And ultimately, that's what it's supposed to do, is it's supposed to solidify the monarchy and the authority of the monarchy. Now, when we're digging into Mark's gospel in this section, it's all about the authority of King Jesus. What is his right to rule? And more specifically, how does he rule? What does his authority look like? How is it displayed? And so first we begin with our first little point, which is we're going to look at how Jesus' authority is displayed and how Jesus sees. Go with me to verse 16, chapter 1. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. A little bit later in verse 19, we say, we see, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending, mending the nets. We all instinctively know that to see something or to do anything begins with first seeing it, right? Um, for my kids, I regularly have to tell them to go clean their rooms, right? And I sometimes we'll get a little bit of pushback. And sometimes um, one of my boys will come down and say, Dad, why do I have to clean your room? And my response is often, just go look at it, right? Just go see it, right? You can see why you have to clean your room, right? Because we all instinctively know that any action begins first with seeing something. And Jesus is no different. We see that King Jesus sees the disciples. That as he's going along, before he even calls them, he sees them. Now let's not go past this important point. King Jesus, who the book of Hebrews tells us is the radiance of the glory of God, the very imprint of his nature. Jesus is high and lifted up. He is fully God and fully man. He is far higher than any king or principality. Jesus sees these individual disciples. He sees them. And we don't want to go past that because we have to understand first, when you're dealing with King Jesus, you're dealing with a king who sees individuals. He doesn't just see the collective. He sees you. He sees me. He sees us. And that's important. That's important. Secondly, we see that Jesus sees, it's a lot of sees this morning, that he sees the collective people that are suffering throughout Galilee, right? Towards the tail end, we see that he, he comes to cleanse a leper. We see that many people are coming to him who are, who are sick and in need. And Jesus sees them and he helps them. Again, showing us the type of authority that King Jesus has. He doesn't push them to the wayside. He doesn't say, you know what? I don't have enough time for you. He doesn't say, hey, I've got important things to do. No, Jesus sees them and he helps them. Why is this important? It's important because we don't typically see that sort of interaction from a king. There's been some recent stories about Queen Elizabeth um, that have come out. And, and one of the things that people often 
just um, really celebrate about her life is the fact that she was able to come into various situations. And I even have some friends who have, who have met her and they've said this, where they've come into various situations and she seems to really care about the person that she's meeting, whoever that person is. She really cared and wanted to hear about how their life was. And in normal day with meeting anybody, that, that would be expected, right? But why is it special in this case? It's because she's a queen. She's a queen and you don't expect it. You don't expect a monarchy figure to care about you or to see you in that moment. And just like how we saw that with Queen Elizabeth, we see that with Jesus as he sees his first disciples and he sees those who are hurting and those who are in pain. Secondly, we see how Jesus speaks and we see his authority displayed in how he speaks. If you go back with me to verse 17, it says to Simon and Andrew, it said, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Go, go a little bit down in verse, uh, um, in verse 20. It says, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So Jesus doesn't just stop with seeing his disciples. He calls out to them. He speaks to them, Right? That's the next step of his authority. He does, it doesn't matter if you have no action to do anything, right? If you see something taking place and you don't act or you don't speak up, right? The, the speaking is the next level authority. So Jesus speaks up and he calls his disciples to come and follow him. And what does he tell them to do? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. If you read this section of scripture, one of the things that may seem odd to you is the fact that there's no dialogue, right? It just says, and they left their nets and they followed him, right? Did anybody read that? And you're kind of like, okay, what's going on here, right? Where are the details? But you need to understand that it's shocking when you read this and it's meant to be shocking. Mark wrote this so that it would be a little bit shocking for you. Why is that? Because again, this is dealing with the authority and laying out the authority of King Jesus. Because when a king says you, tells you to do something, you know you don't do? You don't have a dialogue about it, right? When a king commands you to do something, you don't say, well, Jesus, you know, what, what, what's the benefit package, right? Uh, do, you, do you match 401ks, right? Um, you know, what's the, what's the salary increases throughout the years? No, you don't see any of that with the disciples, do you? You see that when he calls, they follow. When he calls, they go. And we're going to get to some applications here in a second. But again, it's meant to establish for you the authority of King Jesus, that when King Jesus calls, they go. The second area we see that Jesus speaks is we see that he is preaching and teaching. In fact, he says that this is the reason why he's come out. If you jump with me to verse 38, it says, And he said to them, so this is Jesus saying to the disciples, because the disciples found him alone praying. And he says, And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus and the, 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 the words of Jesus are central to his ministry. He is preaching. He is teaching the people. It's one of the reasons why we care so much within our church about the preached word. It's one of the reasons why we pray and we, we ask God to speak through his word because we see that his word was central in Jesus' ministry. 
And so we, we focus on it. It's one of the reasons why even the pulpit goes in the center of what we're doing here. It's not just so that people can see better. It's, it's meant to show the symbolism of that the word of God is central to who we are as the people of God. And Jesus is preaching and teaching throughout the area. He's speaking. The, the, the other connection to that is if you remember on, the, on your little notes, I said that Jesus speaks, but let's also look how Jesus silences. If you jump with me real quick to verse, 20, or verse 23, it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus not only has the authority to speak, he also has the authority to silence. We see this moment where this man with this unclean spirit comes to him, so much so that then the unclean spirit begins speaking through the man to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus silences the demon. He says, be silent and come out of him. Right? We see that the, the, the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. We don't, we're not told about you know, how the disciples view Jesus at this point. We know later on that it takes the disciples a long time to really recognize that Jesus is God in man, that he is the Messiah figure. But the demons, they know very well exactly who Jesus is. In fact, their question to him is, have you come now to destroy us? And what does Jesus do? Jesus silences them. He silences them. Jesus has the power and the authority to both speak words of life and to silence demons of death. He has that authority and he has that power. Our third little point this morning is how Jesus acts. As we're looking at his authority, let's look how Jesus acts. Let me ask you this morning, how do you expect for a king to act? If you're like me, you expect for a king to um, go about their royal processes, to, to dress nicely, right? To, to be very, you know, to have the pageantry, um, to have all of the, uh, the, the, the class or however you want to say it, um, but to be kind of distant because a king has to be sort of distant from the people, right? That's how we typically see earthly kings function. Jesus is the complete opposite. We see that Jesus is involved with his people, his people that are hurting, his people that are, 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 are possessed by demons, his people that have so many uh, sicknesses and ills in their life. Jesus, as he's going out preaching and teaching, he's interacting with the people that are hurting the most and he's healing them. He's healing them. He's taking, we're, we're told he, here that as people are coming, that his time um, uh, with them went out. Uh, it says in verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So even after he's exhausted, after preaching and teaching for what have been hours upon hours, sundown has come and now all the sick have come and don't go by that quickly. Why do you think the sick came at sundown? Why do you think? Because many of them, would have been like lepers, who when you go out, everyone knows that you are the sick. 
Everyone knows that you are the disenfranchised. Everyone knows that you are, quote, unclean. In fact, lepers had to say that when they would come across people. Unclean, unclean, they would have to decry to people. And so it's no, it's no surprise that the sick are coming at sundown. But does Jesus say, hey guys, you know, I'm exhausted. I've had a long day of preaching and teaching. You know, I just, I just cast it out. I just silenced a demon over here. I'm just, I'm exhausted. Uh, why don't you come tomorrow? No, Jesus heals them. He helps them. We see that King Jesus uses his authority to help those who are hurting, to help those who are sick. We see in other places that Jesus not only heals, but he continues to preach and teach. He continues to um, spread the good news to out all who are in the land and in the area, and so much so that it causes quite a ruckus. But the question for us this morning, as we look at the authority of Jesus is, what does this mean for you and me? What does this mean for us? Because we can look at the authority of Jesus and we can say, okay, yes and amen. Okay, Jesus sees things. Yeah, he's God. He sees stuff. Okay, secondly, yeah, Jesus speaks. Yep, he has the authority to speak. And he has the authority of silence. He's God. And thirdly, Jesus acts. Of course he does. But again, what does this mean for me in my Monday through Sunday? What does this mean for me on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday when life is unraveling? Or what does this mean for me on Monday morning when I wake up and say, okay, what is my day going to look like today? What does this mean for us? Turn with me just briefly to another gospel, Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. This fast forwards in the gospel narrative to where Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He was in the grave for three days. He's been risen from the grave, and now he's with his disciples again. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Mark's gospel begins with Jesus' authority. Matthew's gospel, as we come to the Great Commission, as it's called, ends with Jesus' authority, but then one special part, in Jesus' authority, he is now doing what? He is now commissioning you. He is now giving you and me authority to act as his representatives in the world in which we live. He's acting, or he's giving you and I to be his ministers of reconciliation. It's an amazing thing that often in the church we can go beyond. We can, we can start to view ourselves as kind of just, we, we come to know Jesus and then we're just waiting until we meet him in heaven. And what we do is we lose so much of what Jesus has called us to do and to be in the world. And we, we end up losing the authority that Jesus himself wants us to have as his representatives here on this, on this earth. So let's look back at our points and look how they apply to us. So with Jesus' authority, how do you see things? How do you view things? Coming to know Jesus 
should begin to change the way in which you look at the world. It should begin to change the way in which you look and you and I look at our neighbors. So our neighbors are not just people that, you know, uh, don't, I might be letting too much of my stuff into here, but like some, my neighbor and I have this constant battle of like, who's, where does our property line go, right? So who mows what part, you know? And so, uh, so my neighbor isn't just trying to figure out who, where the property line is. No, my neighbor is a person made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and worthy to hear about King Jesus, worthy to hear about the gospel of grace that they can respond to. It changes how we see the world. Secondly, it changes how we see the world in, in our vocations, right? What our vocations change is it changes us from having simply a vocation to now having a calling, right? Whatever your vocation is this morning, whether you are a teacher, whether you are a nurse, whether you work for one of the agencies, whether you are, you know, fill in the blank, whatever that may be, that's your vocation. God has called you to that. But in Jesus Christ, he's now, he's now extended it into a calling for you to use it in whatever capacity he's called you to use it in, right? If you are a homemaker, right? My wife has had wonderful ex experiences of going on play dates with families, with moms and families who, who don't know Jesus. And she has an opportunity to get to know them, to talk to them about Jesus, to invite them to church. It's the, it's the step of taking your vocation into your calling, but it begins with seeing things differently in our life. Secondly, the authority of Jesus for us should change how we speak, the words we use. I don't know about you. Uh, I'm sure your households are perfect. Mine is not. This is an area that I want to just put as a door, as just a, a just everywhere in my house of how am I speaking? Am I speaking words of life to my wife and to my kids? Am I speaking words of life to my neighbors, to other people around me? Or am I just saying whatever, whatever I want to say, right? I need to, in, in Christ's authority, take captive my words and be somebody who speaks life. But secondly, there's also the aspect of what do you silence in your life? Friends, Something that we learned through the launching of this site was how much Satan is active at disrupting the things of God in this world. Um, at some point, I'll be able to and we'll be able to give you more examples, especially our staff team, of just all of the ways in which Satan... I began keeping a journal of all of the ways in which Satan was trying to hurt us, our families, just dis bring dissension and disruption throughout all throughout the last nine months, and I'll share more with it, more with you later, um, at some other some other time, some other, some other juncture. But we have an enemy in our lives, and this enemy hates everything that you are. He hates that you love Jesus. He hates your family. He hates what we're doing here right now. And he is actively working to spread lies into your soul, to spread lies and to whisper lies into who you are to disrupt what God has called you to do and the things that God has called you to, to live out in your Christian life. The question for us is, are you silencing those things? Are you silencing those things? My wife recently told me something really interesting. It's within social and psychological science. It's called... Um, 
It's called, um, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to get the word right. If Sarah's in the room, she can say it. Thought stopping. Thanks, babe. Uh, it's called thought stopping. You guys know what thought stopping is? It literally is the action of when you're beginning to have, so if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, OCD, whatever it may be, if there's, there's things that are being told, you, told to you that aren't true, you literally say, stop it. Stop it. You verbalize whatever that is. And scientists have found that it actually helps push back the lies within a person's mind. And I would say we as Christians need to do the same thing. Paul tells us to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, right? We need to take our words seriously and we need to silence what the evil one tries to speak into us. We need to silence it not only in our, in our minds, but also with our families. There have been a number of times where my wife and I have had to say to each other, like, you know, Satan's just, he's, he's telling us lies. No, we're not going to believe that, right? We'll get together, we'll pray over it, right? These are like the the grade A moments in our, in our life and marriage, okay? Like 5% of the time, we do it great all the time, right? But we, you have to silence the, the lies of the enemy. Take every thought captive. But what, what I don't want us to do is to pretend that he's not there. Because you know what you don't do with an enemy? You don't pretend that they're not there because they are. So Jesus, through his authority, we can speak words of life. We can silence the evil one. And thirdly, we want to look at how Jesus leads us to act out his authority here on this earth. We've already talked about vocation, but what I want to dig into just here briefly as we close is uh, these five stories that we've kind of gone through this morning. They may look like five different stories, but actually they're very connected. If you look with me at verse 17, you can see that what does Jesus say when he calls Simon and Andrew? He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The promise that Jesus gives them is that come with me and through you, you're going to become fishers of men. You're going to reach people with my gospel message. Now jump all the way to the end of our passage. Verse 45, the very end, it says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. This is the man that Jesus healed. Jesus told him not to do this, but he still does it anyways. He says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. What Jesus said was going to happen, happened, didn't it? In one small point of scripture, we're not even through chapter one at this point, and Jesus is seeing, or through the ministry of Jesus and through the ministry of disciples, we're seeing that people are coming to Christ and believing the gospel message. My question for you and I this morning is, how are we doing with spreading this gospel message? We have been given the incredible privilege to be Jesus' ministers of reconciliation to be his people that get to spread this gospel message. My question for you this morning is how, in what ways are you thinking about yourself as a minister of that reconciliation? And if I can just offer some suggestions, because you know some people will leave this and they'll say, I'm going over to my neighbors right now, right? And if you've never met your neighbor, that might not be the best plan, right? Begin with prayer. Begin with prayer. Begin knowing who your neighbors are, knowing their names. 
Something that we started doing a while back is we literally kept uh, kind of a, a map of our, our neighborhood and then we begin putting our neighbors' names in the map and so we can begin praying for our neighbors. So begin praying with your neighbors. If you know your neighbors, yeah, invite them over for dinner, right? You're having dinner, they're having dinner, why not have dinner together? Invite them over for dinner. And thirdly, hey, we have this now. So invite them to church. We would love to meet them. We would love to know them. Jesus not only tells his disciples that they're going to be fishers of men, but he tells that, that to us as well. His great commission that we read in Matthew 28 is that commission to go be fishers of men. And if I can just say this, I'm going to end with this story. This spreading of the gospel, I have found, is the most invigorating and unexpected the Lord just works in ways that you just, you never expect him to work, right? I would love to tell you that as I've gotten to share the love of Jesus with people, that it's like these Billy Graham moments, uh, but nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I have so many stories of, to, I have so many stories that I could tell you of just a number of different little ways that people have come to faith in ways that if I would have told you beforehand, like I wouldn't have guessed that the Lord could use that. I'm going to tell you one story this morning. So part of Sarah Mai's story was when I was 22 years old out of the army, um, I felt a call to ministry. We had just gotten married and um, somehow we thought it was a good idea to accept a call to go uh, be a part of a church revitalization in Detroit, Michigan. Call it youthful exuberance. I don't know. Uh, but we get a phone call from a pastor and he says, hey, this, this church that I'm taking over is dying and we would really love you and your wife to come up and like do some youth ministry, do some college ministry and just give it a go, right? Give it, a, give it the old college try. We don't have any kids and so we say, sure, what's the worst that can happen, right? Let's do it. So we go up there and um, I remember our very first youth group meeting um, I, I wanted to know kind of what we were dealing with because it all happened very quickly. And so we go up there and um, I'm like, okay, so how many students kind of are we starting with? And, um, and Aaron, who's the senior pastor, he said to us, he said, well, um, you know, we, we've, over the last kind of decade, the church, from what I understand, has lost, you know, it used to be this church that had tons of students and they've kind of lost all their students. And now they've got like two. And he's like, on a good Sunday. And I'm like, okay, here we go, right? This really is revitalization. And so, um, but by God's grace, what we began seeing over the next year was, and, and you love, I love the mission of Jesus because like when you have two students, there's no like Christian or non-Christian, you're just trying to reach people, right? You're going, if you guys know Young Life, right? You're just trying to reach students for the gospel, right? And that's what we were doing. And so we're trying to reach students. And so students slowly but surely start coming to faith. Some other students that were in the church start coming around. And there's this one student named Luke. And Luke was uh, this awesome kid. He was super smart, uh, really blonde hair. And Luke was just like, his parents were, were involved in the church. And so he was one, he was like, if there was two when we started, he was one of those two, right? And Luke, every single time that we would have small group, Luke would, would ask us to pray for his friend, Dom, Dominic. Okay, he called him Dom. And Dom was like this friend that he had. It was kind of a friend, but not super close. They used to be like frenemies, but now they were kind of friends. And so he, he tells us to start praying for Dom. And Dom was like on the football team, cool kid, like kind of doing his thing. And, um, you know, Luke would always tell us, he's like, yeah, like, I don't think Dom's going to become a Christian, but we really need to pray for him, right? Like that's, that's how we would start the conversation. We're like, okay, well, we're going to pray. 
And we must have prayed for Dom for like six months. Never even met him. Part of, me, part of me thought that he was like imaginary, right? Maybe Luke was making up like prayer requests. But we prayed for him for like six months. And finally, like in one of our youth messages, I talked about uh, this passage about being fishers of men and how we needed to step out in faith and talk to people about Jesus. And Luke, um, Luke calls me up and says, hey man, like I really need to talk to my friend about Dom. Like we've been praying for him and it's time to be, it's time to be action oriented. I remember that's what Luke said to me. He said, it's time to be action oriented. And I said, right on, man, let's do it. And, uh, and he says, okay, can we meet on on Friday to talk about how I can reach out to my friend Luke. And I said, yeah, we can do that. That's awesome. And so uh, we meet on Friday. Luke comes in just with pep in his step. And uh, he comes up to me and he goes, I was like, okay, man, let's talk. He goes, I did it. And I was like, you did what? You know, he's like, I talked to Dom about Jesus. And I said, cool. Like, what'd you do? He goes, well, I didn't really talk to him. I'm like, okay, right, where's this going? He goes, yeah, I, I, I couldn't really, I, I was nervous about talking to him, and so I did something different. I'm like, okay, what, like, what happened here? Do I need to call your parents? Um, and Luke goes, I wrote him a paper. <sighs> Step away from the story. Uh, youth, youth director JT, if I would have listed your 10 ways not to talk to somebody about Jesus, writing a 10-page Chicago-style paper on Jesus to your unbelieving friend probably would have been top three, right? Probably would have been top three. Um, I'm, I mean, that just shows my own like heart in the, in the midst of it, but that wouldn't have been my thing, right? But Luke says, I wrote him this 10-page paper about all the reasons why he needed to come to, G- come to Jesus. So, I, so like, I'm like, okay, don't, don't freak out right? Just encourage. So I said, Luke, that's awesome, man. That's, that's awesome. In the back of my head, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, we're just going to have to work on this, right? We're just going to have to do something. And Luke goes, he goes, yeah, and he's coming to church on Sunday. I said, oh, okay, right? And I'm sitting there like, okay, maybe he like invited him to go to Steak and Shake after, like, you know, he kind of like bribed him, right? He did the youth ministry thing. Um, Dom did come to church on Sunday, Dom did become a Christian through that, got baptized. His uh, whole family, who weren't Christians, um, his parents were actually um, uh, divorced. Uh, his dad has gotten baptized. His mom has gotten baptized. Uh, his, his, uh, his older brother has been baptized. And Dom is now, uh, when I left that church, Dom uh, just finished seminary and he is going to be ordained, or he's going to be installed and ordained as the youth pastor of that church. Amen. So why do I tell that story? Because the Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. Yes and amen. And God asks us just to step out in faith with the gospel. And the Holy Spirit uses those little meager things that we do. And he does what he does. Praise and amen, right? He makes us fishers of men, fishers of women. It's one of the amazing things that God does in this, in this world. Is he calls not only us to faith in Jesus, but he calls others to faith in Jesus. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few, right? And so let's be those laborers, friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that you do indeed call men and women to faith in Jesus. We thank you that you are in the business of saving, that you are in the business of showing grace and mercy and kindness, that it is really running after us. And so God, I pray and I ask, Lord, just as you told us to pray and ask, that you would indeed send out laborers because the harvest is plentiful. You have people in our neighborhoods. You have neighbors that we know. You have coworkers. That, Father, that your love, that your heart is set upon. So, God, would you draw them to Jesus through us? Would you give us the right words? Would you give us the right means for whatever situation occurs? And, God, would you help hearts like mine that are so often doubtful of all the different ways that you can work? But, God, help us to trust that you do indeed work and that you do whatever you want to do. I pray all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.